Hey, brother! Guys, you may be aware at this point in time that I now have a two-year-old daughter who has just discovered the glory that is the Frozen franchise. Franchise. You get it? Because there's... You get it. At least once a day, she will ask me if we can go and watch Elsa, and because I am also a huge fan of Frozen, I'm like, yeah, no problem, let's do it! But just this past weekend, my wife, daughter, and I were watching the film together when we came across one scene in particular. It's when Anna and Kristoff are running from the super cuddly giant snow monster Marshmallow. It's sort of a literal do-or-die moment, and Kristoff employs a rather interesting survival technique. I'm digging a snow anchor. And in that moment, my wife turned to me and was like, would that actually work? And to the best of my own knowledge, it would. The technical term for what he's doing here is called a snow bollard anchor, which uses the surface area of the rope and the physical weight of the snow to literally provide an anchor. It would work. The thing that I was less sure about, however, is his very next line. There's 20 feet of fresh powder down there. It'll be like landing on a pillow. Now, not to brag or anything like that, but I personally have crashed on my snowboard on numerous occasions and it felt absolutely nothing like landing on a pillow. But then just moments later for Anna and Kristoff. Hey, you were right. Just like a pillow. And while I'm more than willing to give a pass to a movie that also features a talking snowman and ice powers capable of creating an eternal winter, I was just personally still curious to know whether or not this was accurate. Can you safely fall in fresh powder? And turns out it's totally a real thing. And 100 to 200 feet, no problem at all. In fact, back in World War II, there was a British tail gunner by the name of Nicholas Alchemade who survived not just a 200 foot fall, but an 18,000 foot free fall without a parachute. This was because his plane was going down, his parachute had already burned up, and he had made the decision to just jump instead and landed in fresh powder and survived with nothing more than a sprained leg. Now, for clarity, please do not take this as any kind of an endorsement to go and jump into powdered snow from any height whatsoever. But the point I'm actually trying to make is now I'm perfectly okay with the idea that Anna and Kristoff fell 200 feet into fresh powder and were completely unharmed. But this bit of light research kind of got me curious. Like, inside of the Frozen franchise, they're dropping all sorts of different kinds of facts. Who's in the trivia? I am. But is Olaf right? And what other nuggets of truth are hidden inside of Frozen? Well, today we are going to fact check both films. Let's do it. Hey, brother. Okay, right out of the gate, let's start with the fun one. Did you know wombats poop squares? This one is actually true for some reason. Wombats do actually poop squares, which is incredibly novel and incredibly easy to prove. Just simply look. But once you know this to be true, the question starts to become, well then, why? Like what evolutionary reason might there be for wombats pooping squares in particular? I'm gonna go with the highly scientific squareular intestines, probably. Well, it turns out I am not completely alone in this sense of wonderment, and scientists have in fact dissected a wombat that had been struck by a car, which is a detail that is literally included in the article. Apparently that's, that's important to know. The real question is if there's anything else we should be aware of. Like, did we get a plate number on that vehicle? Does he have any friends or families we should be informing? Turns out, no to both of those questions. But what the scientists discovered is that they do have a rather unusual set of muscles that allow for this phenomenon. 
And before you ask, of course they constructed models that would simulate the way that the different body muscles would like expand and contract in order to create this particular outcome. Geez, it's basic rhythms of digestion, but I guess that's more of the how rather than the why. The theory here though, is that wombats, like many other creatures, use their poop in order to mark their territory. And because it is square poop, it is less likely to roll away from where they produce the waste and therefore more accurately mark their territory. Moving on from fecal matter though, let's now talk about blinking. Apparently four million times a day. Did you know we blink four million times a day? This feels like the kind of fun fact you would hear in high school at the cafeteria where the kid across from you was like, hey, did you know we blink four million times a day? And you'd be like, wow, that seems like way too many. And they'd be like, no, it's totally correct. They'd probably make some kind of an argument like, no, you just blink so fast, you don't even realize you're doing it. In fact, you're blinking right now. But don't listen to that kid because no, you're not. People actually blink closer to 15 to 20 times per minute, which translates to about 14 to 19,000 blinks per day. But this all comes down to your own individual BPM or blinks per minute and how long you're awake each day. Either way though, Olaf's quoted 4 million, way off. Sorry, Olaf. However, I'm now much more aware of my own blinking. Moving on though, question number next is, does water have memories? What's that thing you say, Olaf? You think Oh, my theory about advancing technologies is both our savior and our doom? This is a kid's movie, Olaf. Okay, don't remind us. The thing about water. Oh, yeah. Water has memory. Yeah, this one I was particularly interested in examining because it's really central to the overall plot of the movie. Atta Holland is like the Earth's hard drive of memories frozen inside or into a glacier. This is critical to the overall plot. In-universe, water absolutely does have memories. Elsa is able to freeze water into different shapes from the past and learn what actually happened from them. And of course, then there's just Olaf himself, who is just like a walking, talking snowman made of ice and memories. Even beyond that, though, it is the Northuldra people in particular who know the legend of Atahalan. Alas. Only Atahalan knows. And when the North Ultra people learn that Anna and Elsa are in fact of the North Ultra by way of their mother, they break into an actual Scandinavian herding song. This kind of song is called Kulning and is the same song that we actually hear before the opening sequence in the original Frozen film. But as they're doing this particular chant, you may come to notice that the North Ultra people are actually forming the physical symbol that is represented on the heart of Tefiti in Moana. This is the very thing that the ocean, aka the sentient body of water, is quite literally attempting to return. So like, does water actually have memories is a huge overall question to get to the bottom of. And the thing that I found to be the most interesting while researching for this video is that out here in the real world, there is a French scientist by the name of Jacques Benveni. Jacques, Jacques Benveni? Veniste? Probably. Jacques went to rather extraordinary lengths to attempt to prove this idea that water does in fact have memories. He likened the concept to the idea that you could shake your car keys inside of a river of water and then travel downstream and collect a sample of that same water and use the information stored within to actually start your car. And you might be wondering to yourself, well, how on earth would that work? And the answer is, it doesn't. The greater scientific community has largely dismissed Jacques' experiments saying that they defy physical chemistry. And all of this is of extreme fascination to me because it seems like within the Frozen films overall, the creators seem to go to rather significant lengths to employ like actual concepts into what they included in the plot. And again, this idea that water has memory 
pretty darn central to the plot. And overall, this sort of like leads me to wonder whether or not like this is why Olaf has some fun facts that are like dead on the mark, totally accurate, while others are just like completely and utterly wrong. Because the idea that water has memory is like a weird in-between. It's definitely true inside of the movie, but it's definitely not out here in the real world. More than anything, the best argument for this particular idea is that all of the water that has ever been is all and always has been the same water. I feel like Olaf actually says it better. The water that makes up you and me has passed through at least four humans and or animals before us. I know this sounds gross, but this one is actually true and the estimate might actually be higher than four. Obviously the water cycle breaks it down a lot and us humans filter it even more than that. But think about this, all of the water on earth is the same water that has always been here. So oddly, while we don't actually really need to all that much, we don't really create any new water. If anything, we've actually lost very, very small amounts of it to space. Weird. But as long as we're talking about kind of gross, but otherwise interesting claims, let's check a few more of Olaf's. Like for example, Did you know gorillas burp when they're happy? This one is also actually true. Gorillas do in fact burp when they're happy. But what also tends to make most creatures happy is having a full belly. And having a full belly also typically causes you to, you know, burp. So I won't lie, at first I was a little bit disappointed by this particular fun fact because it was like, well, are they happy or are they just full? Clearly some recontextualization has been happening here for just sheer click value, but I did some further reading and that's not actually the case. Gorillas will in fact burp for anything that makes them happy, like simply relaxing or just contentment. It's actually even a form of cheering amongst gorilla groups, which fun fact are referred to as troops. Incidentally, if this fun fact also applies to human beings, then I have to tell you that my brother Jay is probably one of the happiest people that you ever met. If you know, you know, hashtag Jay burps. Just for the record, he did give me permission to make that joke. I don't know if you heard it, but he did just burp. And he's smiling, he seems happy. But guys, we need to take a quick pause right there to give a huge thank you to today's sponsor, Shopify. By now, you guys may be aware of the fact that Jay and I have our own coffee company, Carlin Brothers Mercantile, but what you might not know is that it's powered by Shopify. In case you are unaware, Shopify is a global commerce platform, which is just a really fancy way of saying it's a super easy way to start your online business no matter where you are. And it's really great for just any stage of business at all. Like for example, my wife Alice wanted to get her brick and mortar secondhand clothing business online and thanks to Shopify, she was shipping out orders within a week. And for us here at Super Carlin Brothers, we wanted to be sure that all of our shipments through Carlin Brothers Mercantile were completely carbon neutral. And thanks to Shopify's Shopify Planet feature, it's easy to do that. Then the other thing we ran into is that people were always telling us about how they were recommending our coffee and candles to their friends and family. And we were like, we should find a way to be able to reward those people for spreading the word about our brand. And Shopify also makes that easy thanks to a feature called Shopify Collabs. That's where you can join our insider club and get early access to new product releases, what's coming up in the future and commissions on any promoted sales. But on the whole, what I personally love about Shopify the most is that it allows anybody with an idea to get the ball rolling basically right away. But then as they grow and start to gain momentum, Shopify has all of the necessary tools to then scale up as your company grows. 
And that's because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. So if you'd like to check it out for yourself, and I recommend that you do, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period by heading on over to shopify.com slash SCB. That's all lowercase. Again, head on over to shopify.com slash SCB, and you can start your business no matter what stage of the process you're currently in. One last time, shopify.com slash SCB. Link is in the description down below. Moving on though, we get another fun animal fact from Olaf who claims, Turtles can breathe through their butts. This one is also a completely real phenomenon called cloacal respiration. It occurs with several species of turtles, including the painted box turtle, eastern snapping turtles, and the Fitzroy river turtles. So the next time you find yourself hanging out with a super cool turtle and you think all of a sudden they're being like way rude, maybe they're just breathing, okay? Give it a rest. Moving on from that though, we have yet another fun fact from Olaf. Did you know men are six times more likely to be struck by lightning? This is technically true, but there's a small caveat. And that's because there's nothing about specifically being male that like attracts lightning to you. It's more just simply the fact that historically speaking, men have found themselves inside of like locations that may be more prone to lightning attacks. He says as if lightning like attacks intentionally. <laughs> It does not. Either way though, when it comes to being struck by lightning, men are up by 600%. Take that, ladies. You know what? Let's just make an agreement. Let's none of us get struck by lightning. Deal? Deal? Cool? Cool? Go team. Speaking of teams though, which of these two gentlemen's team do you find yourself on? The bark needs to be faced off. Down is drier. Now this may just feel like a three second debate by two non-essential off-screen characters, but let me assure you that in Norway, this is a very real conversation. Basically, there are two arguments. If it is humid outside, then you stack with the bark facing up to protect from moisture. On the flip side, however, if it is dry outside, then you can stack with the bark down because that allows the wood to dry faster. Although to be absolutely crystal clear, the bottom row, you always stack bark down. I mean, we're not animals, right? Unless of course burping brings you joy, in which case we have a little bit of room for some gray area. <gasps> but overall, this is one of those things that people didn't quite know how strong of opinions they had about until there was this 12 hour long live special television program based on the book, Norwegian Wood, Chopping, Stacking and Drying Wood, The Scandinavian Way by Lars Mittning which by the way, the 12 hour televised special was just 12 straight hours of a wood burning fireplace. Riveting. Watched by 20% of the population. Also BT dubs, I personally own this book and it was the number one bestseller in Norway for an entire year, go figure. But the idea here is that during the program, viewers started to weigh in on whether or not the wood next to the fire was being stacked correctly and turns out had very strong opinions about it. In the end, people were split. It sparked an argument that still burns to this day. You're welcome. Speaking of wood though, at any point in time while you were watching Frozen 2, did like the thought cross your mind as to like why the fire spirit is represented by, of all things, a salamander? Because this one is actually both accurate and inaccurate at the same time. By which I mean, historically and in ancient times, people did believe that salamanders were a source of fire because they were so frequently found on the underside of logs that were being collected for burning. The very simple and basic idea is that the salamanders were just left there after they had run out of all of their flames, I guess. So yes, salamanders have been commonly associated with fire, but do not and probably have not ever actually physically created flames. Also on a similarly confusing note, it may not be entirely obvious why the water spirit is represented by of all things, a horse. 
it's a creature that's obviously capable of swimming, but certainly not like the environment you would most associate with horses. Once again, though, this one is actually still fairly accurate, at least when it comes to Norwegian culture, because what we're actually seeing is what is referred to as a Nekin. A water spirit that is known to take many different forms, but very commonly, specifically a horse that would lure humans into the water where they would then drown them. Which, to be fair, is almost exactly what happens to Elsa when she first encounters this water spirit. But that, of course, brings us to the last, but certainly not least, question which has to do with none other than snowflakes. The original Frozen film made a special effort to ensure that all of the snowflakes that had been depicted throughout the movie were all scientifically accurate, which is to say six-sided. And scientifically speaking, from a molecular level, this is due to the fact that when water freezes into a solid state or ice, it is in the shape of a hexagon or a six-sided structure. And needless to say, overall, this is a fairly impressive commitment to geometry. But then when Frozen 2 was first announced, they rather prominently displayed on the original teaser poster this eight-sided snowflake, which all of a sudden seemed wrong. Are they just giving up on one of the, like, coolest, eh, fun facts from the original movie, or what? In fact, Neil deGrasse Tyson himself weighed in on this particular topic. Dear Disney, you got it right the first time. Water crystals have hexagonal six-fold symmetry. You still have a few months to fix your hashtag Frozen 2 movie poster, unless the sequel takes place in another universe where water crystallizes to different laws of physics. But alas, once we entered inside of the movie, we came to discover that this is not a snowflake at all, but instead a compass, commonly known as Veg Vizier. This is often mistaken as a symbol of the Vikings, but is instead an Icelandic symbol that does have eight sides and does also kind of look like a snowflake. And inside of the movie, it may be interpreted as representing the four different elements. Air, fire, water, Earth. But more specifically, or even thematically, is that the function of this compass isn't to point you north, but instead to help you find your way. Specifically, if you find yourself lost inside of bad weather, and even if you don't know your way. And this is a helpful bit of information when you consider what Elsa is up against inside of the movie. While she is journeying to a specific place, the thing she's actually looking for is herself. So while it may resemble a snowflake, it isn't. But that doesn't matter because it's still exactly what Elsa needs. There you go, guys. Hopefully that answers any of your burning questions from the Frozen franchise. If you have any more, be sure to let us know in the towel section down below. Otherwise, be sure to like this video and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. If you'd like to find out who Kristoff's parents actually are, you can check out this video right over here. But otherwise, until next time, bye.